0: You guys are already done, greeting. <laughs> I thought I was going to go on a little bit longer. No, I am just kidding. Good evening. It's great to be here. Again, uh, some of you uh, weren't here the last time I was here, and so to you, this is my first time here, but I've been here before. For those of you that know me, I'm back. <laughs> and those of you that don't know me, you're lucky. Well, I have the esteemed honor and privilege to bring to you God's word tonight. And we're going to be in the book of Psalms. So I'm going to ask you guys to open up to Psalm 25. And the title of my message tonight is, What am I to do? What am I to do? This psalm has uh, spoken a lot of comfort to me Personally. But before I go any further, I need to ask the Lord to be over this study so that it's his glory. Heavenly Father, we come before you. And Lord, as we go to your word, I pray that you would speak to us from it, Lord, that we would grow dependent upon it, knowing that it is the very food for our lives, Father God. You're the lamp unto our feet, the guide for our path. Lord, you are the clarity in our confusion. And so we ask for you to speak here tonight to us. That you would speak through all that confusion, all that worldly counsel that comes into us, Father God. That you would speak clearly through all that. You would break through all of it and speak directly to our hearts. That we would heed your counsel, Father God. And we would start and, and we would continue on your path through your word. In Jesus' name, amen. We all have to make decisions in our life. And some sources suggest that the average person is going to make about 35,000 choices per day. Assuming you sleep about seven hours per night, that means 2,000 decisions per hour. Or if we even drill into that data a little bit further, that's one decision every two seconds. And it's because you and I have been given free will. And we have a free will to make a multitude of choices in life. We get to choose what we're going to eat, how much of it we will eat, how many times we will go back for more. We get to choose what we're going to wear, what we get to spend our money on. We get to choose what jobs and careers we will pursue, how we're going to vote, who we're going to vote for, what issues matter to us. We get to choose who we're going to spend our time with. We get to choose what we're going to say and how we're going to say it, and so on and so forth. You can see that there is a multitude of choices that we get to make that you probably stopped thinking about the fact that you're making those choices all the time. They become automatic. Every choice that we make brings with it consequences. And consequences can be good or bad. The ability to choose, that's the incredible and exciting power that we have been entrusted with by our God for which we have an obligation to be good stewards of it. Now, 20th century philosopher Albert Camus said, life is a sum of all your choices. 35,000 choices a day makes 12,775,000 choices a year. And if we extrapolate that over the general assumed course of a lifespan of 70 years, according to Psalms in the Bible, that comes out to 894,200. 894,250,000 choices. You put those 894,250,000 choices together, and that is who you are. The reality of it, though, is many of those choices don't make up who you are. It's the choices that you make in the hard times. It's the choices you make in the difficult circumstances of life The choices that take longer than two seconds to decide. The choices that we make to follow what we would discern as God's will. The decisions that are going to affect us and those around us immediately and continually. How do we make those tough decisions? with such ramifications that can come from it and far-lasting consequences. There are decisions I made in high school that still affect me to this day. I'm a couple of years out of high school now. What do we do at those times that we don't know what to do? Are we on the right path? What are we doing? Where do we turn when faced with this question of what am I to do? Well, that's where Psalm 25 comes in. Psalm 25 is a psalm of David, in which David is coming to the Lord in dependence upon the Lord. It's David's heart as a God-fearing man on display in a season of crisis and hard times. This psalm pictures life and its choices as as a difficult journey that we cannot navigate successfully on our own. Psychologist M. Scott Peck wrote, Once we truly know that life is difficult, once we truly understand and accept it, then life is no longer difficult. David knew that the path of life was not easy. And so we're going to see where he turned when he was faced with the question of what am I to do? As we're going to find the, the belief is that the psalm is written during a hard time in David's life in which he's facing a rebellion from his own son. And so starting in Psalm 25, verse 1, it says, Lord, I appeal to you. My God, I trust in you. Do not let me be disgraced. Do not let my enemies gloat over me. No one who waits for you will be disgraced. Those who act treacherously without cause will be disgraced. Make your ways known to me, Lord. Teach me your paths. Guide me in your truth and teach me. For you are the God of my salvation. I wait for you all day long. Remember, Lord, your compassion and your faithful love, for they have existed from antiquity. Do not remember the sins of my youth or my acts of rebellion in keeping with your faithful love. Remember me because of your goodness, Lord. The Lord is good and upright, and therefore he shows sinners the way. He leads the humble in what is right and teaches them his way. All the Lord's ways show faithful love and truth to those who keep his covenant and decrees. Lord, for the sake of your name, forgive my iniquity, for it is immense. Who is this person who fears the Lord? He will show him the way he should choose. He will live a good life, and his descendants will inherit the land. The secret counsel of the Lord is for those who fear him, and he reveals his covenant to them. My eyes are always on the Lord, for he will pull my feet out of the net. Turn to me and be gracious to me, for I am alone and afflicted. The distresses of my heart increase, bring me out of my sufferings. Consider my affliction and trouble and forgive all my sins. Consider my enemies, they are numerous and they hate me violently. Guard me and rescue me, do not let me be disgraced, for I take refuge in you. May integrity and what is right watch over me, for I wait for you. God, redeem Israel from all its distresses. This psalm divides up nicely into three sections in which we see where David goes when he's faced with that question, What am I to do? And the number one thing that we see him do as he turns in this psalm is he trusts in God alone. When you're faced with difficult choices and you're faced with difficult things in your life and and you come across that question and you're just filled with confusion, you need to trust God alone. There's no higher authority. It can't be proven beyond a shadow of a doubt, but here's the situation in which David um, is believed to have been in by all the uh, higher Bible scholars than myself. It's written after his sin in which there, there was a son that he had who liked his daughter Tamar. And his son set up a trap in which he took advantage of Tamar, and David did nothing about it. Now Tamar was the sister for another son of David's his name was Absalom. Absalom went in and exacted revenge for his sister and in doing so he also ended up taking part of the kingdom and starting a rebellion against David. You see David's sin to not handle the situation David was not known in the David was known as a man after God's own heart but he was not a man known to discipline his children. And so he faced a lot of trouble because of that. And, and I go to this psalm for when I'm confused because I find myself a lot like David. I can find myself in messes with my own sin and my sin choices that I've chosen to do because it was the easier thing to do. And now I'm in a big mess. And so David, when he was in a big mess, he comes. He's in a terrible, difficult, confusing time. He's like, now what am I to do? I didn't, I didn't punish my one son. He's dead now. Tamar's been ravaged. Absalom's against me, and the kingdom hates me right now. He shows great trust because he goes to the Lord. It's through prayer David goes to the Lord in trust. In his trouble, David says, Lord, I appeal to you. And that phrase is quite interesting. When you appeal to someone, it indicates a desire to arouse a sympathetic response or to make an earnest request. Appeal is also related to take a lower court's decision to a higher court for review. That's why we have what's called the court of appeals. You go from a lower court to a higher court. And lastly, when we appeal, we call upon another for corroboration, vindication, or for decision. And there's no higher court than the court of the Lord. So the original language indicates that David is saying... To you, Lord, I lift my soul. Appeal is the word essa, and it means to raise from a lower to a higher position, to lift up to raise high. You see, there's people in this world that you're going to run across, and when you go and you ask them for advice because you're in a pickle or because you come across a situation you've never faced before, they're going to turn to horoscopes. They're going to turn to tarot cards. They're going to go outside, and they're going to say, well, because that star over there is not twinkling, and that star over there is twinkling, well, that means um, your cows are hungry. They have other means of divination to make decisions. All of those, what they are is they're manufactured substitutes for God anyway. They're false idols. David is lifting his heart to the Lord because he's the one and only true source of decision. You see, it's in the dark and confusing hours of life when we don't know what we're to do that we need to raise and lift ourselves in appeal to God because there is no higher authority. We have to find our encouragement and strength in our Lord and God. In 1 Samuel 30 verse 6, we see the situation that David was in. He's in an extremely difficult position. It says the troops talked about stoning him. They were bitter over the loss of their sons and their daughters. But that verse ends with, it says, But David found strength in the Lord his God. It's been said by many that if the outlook is bleak, try the uplook. David continues on and he says, My God, I trust in you. I believe in you. I place faith and I'm in full confidence of you. The list ends there. He doesn't say, "God, I trust you, and I trust my bank account, and I trust my trusty old car." And he he says, "God, I trust you," and it stops there. God alone, in His trust, David does. He says, "Don't let me be disgraced, and don't let my enemies gloat over me. Don't let them have victory or power over me." He, he even declares confidently, "No one who waits for you will be disgraced." And that word, disgrace. Carries with it the sense of being ashamed or embarrassed. Perhaps full of remorse at what you have placed your faith and trust in. David stressed his confidence in turning to the Lord. He lifted up his soul without shame and confidently declares the truth that no one who waits upon the Lord will be put to shame. The one who waits upon the Lord, that's the one who's hoping in the Lord. That's the one who's trusting in the Lord. That's the one who confidently puts their future in the hands of the Lord. And the Lord will answer and he will meet the needs of the one who waits upon him. It's a promise that you find throughout scripture. No one will ever be let down. No one will ever be disappointed. And no one is going to come to find that they trusted in something that later proved unworthy because God is worthy. Paul talked about this same waiting upon the Lord and hoping in the Lord in Romans 5.5. 5. When it talks about the difficult times that come that build character, that character builds the, through the perseverance, you build character, character builds hope. In Romans 5.5, 5, he finishes it off. He says, this hope will not disappoint us because God's love has been poured out in our hearts through the Holy Spirit who is given to us. But also understand this. When you wait upon the Lord... You're not sitting there just waiting. Okay, Lord, any time now, you can act. Go ahead and do what you're doing. No, waiting upon the Lord is an active word. It's not a passive word. And it's to be active in service to the Lord. It's not... In connection with like a waiting room, you know where you go and you sit and you wait for someone to come out and tell you what's going on. No, this is talking about the waiting of a server at a restaurant or something or or a server who's serving their master, waiting to see what the master needs, continuing to serve. When you wait upon the Lord, you continue doing the things that you were doing before. You continue to do the calling that he has for you. You continue to do those things while you wait on the Lord. But notice what David says here, though. Those who act treacherously without cause will be disgraced. Those who act treacherously are those who have to have control and manipulate the situation. If we can't wait upon the Lord to fix it and we go, you know what, Lord? Let me help you. Let me help you. I know exactly what you need to do. You just do my plan that I got right here, Lord, and we'll make it happen. What would have happened if the if David never waited on the Lord to anoint him when he anointed him king to put him as king? But David never acted treacherously against Saul. He waited and waited and waited and then the Lord instilled him. Number 2, when you don't know what to do and you're trusting in the Lord alone, number 2 is you need to seek the Lord's path. If you're going to trust in God, we need to do it his way, right? In verse four, it says, make your ways known to me, Lord. Teach me your paths. Guide me in your truth. Teach me for you are the God of my salvation. I wait for you all day long. Remember, Lord, your compassion and your faithful love for they have existed from antiquity. Do not remember the sins of my youth or my acts of rebellion in keeping with your faithful love. Remember me because of your goodness, Lord. The Lord is good and upright, therefore he shows sinners the way. He leads the humble in what is right and teaches them his way. All the Lord's ways show faithful love and truth to those who keep his covenant and decrees. Lord, for the sake of your name, forgive my iniquity, for it is immense. Who is this person who fears the Lord? He will show him the way he should choose. He will live a good life, and his descendants will inherit the land. The secret counsel of the Lord is for those who fear him and he reveals his covenant to them. I think in order to avoid acting treacherously in hard times and following the worldly wisdom that says the ends justify the means or that says you need to seek vengeance, you need to get them back, you need to do what's right, you need to go get what you deserve, when it says that vengeance is the Lord's. What we see is David saying, God, what would you have me do? Where would you have me go, Lord? God, I'm, I'm in this situation, but what do you want? It makes no sense to turn to God and trust him alone. If we're going to keep going on in our own way, we have to seek God's way. So David asked God, he says, make your ways known to me, Lord. Teach me your paths. And this indicates that God's ways require instruction and learning. We know that in order to make right decisions to follow the right path, you have to be headed the right way. We know in scripture that there's two paths in life. Now it is true the saying that all roads lead to God, but they never tell you the fine print. All roads lead to God, only one leads to God as your Father in heaven, and that's through the Lord Jesus Christ. The other roads lead to God as your judge for all of eternity. The only way to be on the right path is to be on the path of righteousness, And no one happens on that path by mistake or accident. That path of righteousness, God's path, God's way, it has to be taught. You don't accidentally start following God's way. It has to be shown. Proverbs tells us this over and over again. It says there's a way that seems right to a person, but its way ends in death. Proverbs 16.25 repeats it because anytime the Bible repeats something, it's because we'll forget it. There's a way that seems right to a person, but its end is the way to death. Jesus talked about these two paths in Matthew, in in the Sermon on the Mount. He says, enter through the narrow gate in Matthew 7.13. For the gate is wide and the road is broad that leads to destruction. There's many who go through it. How narrow is the gate? And difficult the road that leads to life. Few find it. Instruction and guidance are emphasized in order to be on the right path. He says, guide me in your truth and teach me. And that's a wonderful truth. That you can come to God because God will show sinners the way and he will lead the humble in what is right. He teaches them his way. You're not going to come to God and say, show me the right way. And he's going to say, no, look what you did. You've you got to lie in it now. I'm done with you. You messed up one too many times. God will show sinners the way. It doesn't say God will show the perfect people the way. He's going to show sinners the way. That gives me hope. Because I'm a sinner. The word of God and the revealed truth of God, those are the instruments that God uses to instruct and teach and guide. All the way back in Exodus eighteen twenty, it says, instruct them about the statutes and laws and teach them the way to live and what they must do. And then you go to the other end of the Bible, in 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16. All scripture is inspired by God and profitable for teaching, for rebuking, for correcting, for training in righteousness. So that the man of God may be completely equipped for every good work. And we have the promise from the Lord, Psalm 32, verse 8. I will instruct you and show you the way to go with my eye on you. I will give counsel. The Lord instructs us, but understand that he instructs us through his word. If you want to know God's guidance, get in his word. You can't say that I don't know the will of God if you haven't been in the word of God. It's not enough to be instructed, though. In Seeking the way of the Lord does nothing when he guides us. We can read this book all day long. We can memorize it. We can put it in our heart. But if we never once obey it, it means nothing. Obedience is a necessary part to seeking the Lord's path. David says in verse 10, All the Lord's ways show faithful love and truth to those who keep his covenant and decrees. The decrees and covenants, those are summed up in what's called the law or the Torah. Later expanded to be the law and the prophets. Later expanded to be the Holy Bible, the New and the Old Testament. Those two words and the word of God, they speak of obedience to God. Since David turned to the Lord trusting in him only, it wasn't a huge leap to trust the Lord in obedience either, right? It should be the same for us. If we're going to turn to the Lord and trust Him, we should be able to trust Him in obedience as well, understanding that all His ways show faithful love and truth to those who keep His word. David meditated on the position of the Lord. He says, You are the God of my salvation. For those of us that are here tonight that know the Lord Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior. He is the God of our salvation. If he came and saved us from ourselves already. Saved us from the penalty of the sin that we have committed against him. Why would he say, okay, I'm going to send Christ to die on the cross for you. I'm going to forgive you of all your sin. But then when you come to me and ask me for guidance and direction, I'm going to lead you into a, a trap. I'm going to lead you into a snake pit. It's ludicrous to to do that. But that's exactly what's going on when we say, no, God. I know your word says this, but I'm going to do it my own way. I'm going to go on my own path. David also meditated on the character of God. In verse 8, he says, the Lord is good and upright. These two words denote that he has moral excellence and moral rightness. He always says and always does what is right. God can always be trusted to guide those who obey his word. He's always good. And then we have a promise in the New Testament that says that all things work together for the good of those who love God, who are called according to his purpose. If you are here in Christ Jesus today, that's you. Elizabeth Elliot, she's written a lot on guidance. And for those of you that don't know, she was the widow of a martyr missionary, Jim Elliot, who was martyred in the last century or so. Elizabeth Elliot said this, Does it make sense to pray for guidance about the future if we're not obeying the thing that lies before us today? How many momentous events in scripture depended on one person's seemingly small act of obedience? Rest assured, do what God tells you to do now and depend upon it and you will be shown what to do next. It's important to obey because it's not enough to know. But what we do know must be applied. It must be put into practice in our lives or it's useless to us. But maybe... Maybe you're like I was, walking in the wrong way for such a long time. That you go, how do I begin to obey? What, how, how, how do I get back on that path? In verse 9, David shares how obedience begins. And it begins with humility. It's humbly coming and saying, I don't know the way. But God does. You see, when we're disobedient to God, it's because we're prideful. We're saying, I know better. I got this, God. I don't need you. But when we come to the Lord and we're humble and we say, I'm broken, I'm lost, I'm confused, I can't do this, we open ourselves to allowing God to guide us and to lead us. The path of the Lord is found in the mercy of the Lord. David calls upon the Lord to remember his compassion and faithful love. Uh, It's a Hebrew word, chesed. And it talks about strength, love, and faithfulness all together. You can't remove any one of those words or you lose the complete definition of that Hebrew word. It all works together. And he says that his faithful love and his compassion, he says it's existed since antiquity. It's just a fancy phrase of saying it's existed since always. He says, remember your compassion and faithful love. He doesn't say, remember me because I'm great. In fact, in in regards to himself, he says, Lord, forget my sin. Forget my rebellion. Bible commentator Horns rightly stated this. When God remembers his mercy, he forgets our sin. So David invites the Lord to remember him in keeping with his faithful love and because of his own goodness. Because David knows he has no reason to stand before the Lord in his own right. He's learned of the Lord. He's walking in the path of the Lord as he's shown it. And now he's approaching on that path of mercy and humility before the Lord. And he says, because of your faithful love, because of your goodness, Lord, remember me. Nothing that I've done. And then he finishes it off. He says, for, this, for the sake of your name, Lord, forgive my iniquity because it is immense. In verse 11. David's coming on the right path now. He has the right application and obedience. And he's asking and seeking forgiveness of the Lord. And when we're seeking forgiveness from God, we have to remember we're not seeking God to ignore our sin. We're not asking to excuse our sin. We're not asking God to even shrink our sin. Because forgiveness for sin is found when we rightly identify our sin and the greatness of it in the presence of God. And our sin is great Because of who it's against. Our sin is great. Because it's against just and fair laws. And our sin is great. Because we bear the image of God. And yet through our sin. We mar that image that we were bestowed. And our sin is great. Because of the sheer number of our sins. But know this. Freedom and peace come from acknowledging our great sin. It's not putting a bigger weight on us as we carry that burden of our sin. What we're actually doing is laying down the burden of our sin as we confess that sin before God. Because the greater we see our sin as being, the greater our Savior will be to us. If our sin is small, our Savior seems small. But understanding how great our sin is, magnifies christ all the more instruction on obedience and mercy all coming together in one who's humble and that creates someone who is what the bible refers to as someone who fears the lord and the fear of the lord as we know is the beginning of wisdom and knowledge according to proverbs the fear of the lord is what wisdom teaches and it's the humility that comes before honor You see, Proverbs 31.30 talks about, we we, we are all familiar with the uh, Proverbs woman. But in 31.30 it says, charm is deceptive and beauty is fleeting. But a woman who fears the Lord will be praised. She's not praised because of her charm. She's not praised because of her beauty. She's praised because of her fear of the Lord. Fear of the Lord is the awe at the majesty of God. It's, It's not cowering before God, waiting for him to smite thee. It's the reverence of the greatness of God. You see, the fear of the Lord comes when we realize who God is and what he did for us, and the mark of one who fears God is one who's humble before God. Like David was. Remember me, Lord, because you're great, not because I'm great. But here's the promise. God leads and God instructs those who fear him. God reveals his secret counsel and covenant to them. Paul talked about this in 1 Corinthians 2.14. He says the person without the spirit won't receive what comes from God's spirit because it's foolishness to him. Because he stands before God in pride. He's not able to understand it because it's evaluated spiritually. He needs to come humbly. And when you come humbly, when you have that fear of the Lord, then you understand the spiritual things. And he leads those who fear him. He includes them. He directs them. Those who fear the Lord, they're led, they're directed, and they're included with him. When you fear God, he can use you. Don't expect that God is going to guide you. That God is going to direct you. That God is even going to reveal himself to you if you don't have that fear of him. If you, don't under, if you don't recognize the awesomeness, the greatness of God. You see, a lot of times what we find, especially in Western Christian churches, is we won't say this out front, but the way we treat God is this. We believe that God is a genie. And all we have to do is open up our Bible, find our favorite verse, ask for what we want. And if we say, in Jesus' name, it's the same as when Aladdin would rub the lamp. The genie would pop out and go, poof, what do you want? I'll give you three wishes. We're not getting our wishes granted. We're relating to the creator God who wants to know us who loves us, whose faithful love went out and sought us when we were lost. We're relating to the true and living God, a holy God, a God full of majesty and glory. And it's only when we fear him, only when we get to know him as he's revealed himself, that we will receive his instruction and his guidance. It's only those who fear the Lord who are going to stick to the Lord's path anyway. All others will be driven from the path by whatever else they fear more. If we're afraid of upsetting people because they might say that we're a little too holy for them now. We're going to stray from that path. When we fear how following God will affect our careers, we'll stray from the path. When we learn to fear God, we won't have to fear anything else. And the last thing David did when he turned to the Lord and he sought the Lord was he came knowing that the Lord is able to deliver. Do we come before God and ask for direction and guidance knowing that he can deliver? Do we come to him and go, well, I've tried everything else. I hope you have an answer. In verse 15, he says, My eyes are always on the Lord, for he will put my feet out of the net. Turn to me and be gracious to me, for I am alone and afflicted. The distresses of my heart increase. Bring me out of my sufferings. Consider my affliction and trouble and forgive all my sins. Consider my enemies, for they are numerous and they hate me violently. Guard me and rescue me. Do not let me be disgraced. For I take refuge in you. May integrity and what is right watch over me, for I wait for you. God, redeem Israel from all its distresses. The dominant theme throughout this psalm is the idea of waiting. David mentions waiting upon the Lord in verse 3. It's reiterated in verse 21. And here as we go to verse 15, it's the idea of David, he's shifting his eyes and what he's looking to for help. And he's shifting it to the Lord. The idea is, his eyes are now and forever on the Lord, especially for all that awaits in the future. David waits upon the Lord because he knows the Lord is able to deliver when you know that the Lord is able to deliver, it's natural to wait upon him, right? So I can't remember exactly what it was that I was watching, but it was kind of a parody on superheroes, right? We have all those Marvel comic book heroes, and, and we have all those Superman movies, right? And so this show is based upon the idea of the superheroes just being around. And the normal, everyday, non-super people, as they walked around... They quit being cautious. They quit being careful. And they're just like wandering around and somebody's like, hey, you got to watch out. Why? So-and-so is going to save me. And as they almost get hit by a bus, they swoop down and save them and move them. And it's kind of like that's the idea of what happens when you just come to expect that somebody's going to be there to save you. Like you, you throw caution to the wind. We need to be like that with the Lord Not necessarily throwing caution to the wind and doing whatever it is that we want, but throw caution to the wind and do whatever the Lord wants, because when he's with us, nothing can be against us. And so David waits upon the Lord. We need to wait upon the Lord. When we understand that he's able to deliver, it's a natural response. No matter where you've walked the Lord can save your feet. It doesn't matter what decisions you've made. Maybe you've made a bad decision and you've fallen into this, this thing and it's of your own making. You can turn to the Lord. He's able to save your feet. You might feel alone in your affliction. The Lord is there. As the distresses of your heart increase, He can bring you out of your sufferings. In your affliction and in all of your troubles, he can forgive all your sins. Maybe you feel like you are surrounded by enemies. You just have an innumerable amount of enemies and they hate you and they want to do violence to you. Violence in any which way. Maybe they're against you uh, professionally, maybe they're against you relationally, maybe they're just against you and they're just out to get you on the road as you're driving out there. God will guard you. God will rescue you. The Lord can deliver you. Whatever situation you're in that has put you there where you're you're lonely, the Lord can deliver you. You suffer from heartache, broken heart. Maybe there's a rift in the family. Maybe there's a rift in a relationship that you once thoroughly enjoyed. The Lord can deliver you. Maybe the mistakes you made are far in the past, and now you're dealing with regret. Maybe you have despair thinking that you've gone too far, that there's nothing you can do now. You can't see any way out. Whatever, wherever you're at, the Lord can deliver you. In this great psalm, we've been watching as David has been talking to God and talking about God. And here in the final verses, he's writing about keeping his eyes on God. Even when surrounded by great troubles and distresses, and our hearts are touched as we read this closing prayer request that he has. In spite of all that he has going on, in spite of all the things that he's facing, he firmly declared that he's trusting in God for help and deliverance. And when you know the Lord is able to deliver, you're going to wait for the Lord and for his help. When we wait, we quiet our hearts before him. We seek him with diligence. Hope in the Lord and wait for him before making choices and decisions, be, 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 being very weary of rash decisions. You see, in those times where it's like, oh no, I need to make a decision now, and we're like, Lord, you need to tell me, but you need to do it now. We need to calm our hearts before the Lord and wait for him. Part of receiving God's guidance is learning to wait for his answer. Learning to wait for him to lead us learning to wait for him to guide us. And this world is set up to pressure us to make the choice now. But God never pushes us. God never rushes us. God is never late. He's never hurried. God is always on time in his time for all of time. Present difficulty, even present disappointment, should not prevent us from seeking, trusting, and serving our God. And when we understand that, we get to that last part that David closes the psalm with. When we trust that the Lord is able to deliver, it frees us up to stop caring about ourselves and be able to look out and care for others as well. Difficulty and confusion in the life of the believer, man, it can, it can cause us to turn so inwardly focused that we don't even realize what's going on around us. We're so consumed with self. We focus only on us and our situation and our problems. And as we rub elbows with other people, we get mad at them because we're like, don't you understand where I am? Don't you understand what I'm going through? We ignore the needs of others because we have our needs. But look at David's remarkable example. In the midst of difficulty, he trusted God so much that he had it handled. He didn't have to worry about it. That he was able, and he turned and he prayed for the nation of Israel. He says, God, redeem Israel from its distresses. He wasn't like, God, save David. Just David. And he ends it there. No, he he looked out and he saw that there were others as well. And he said, God, redeem Israel from its own distresses. And here's the truth. Hard times, difficult times, confusing times. They're all going to come. It's not a matter of if they're going to come. It's a matter of when. When. And they can also come from our own sin as well. But when they come, we need to turn and seek the Lord and his path. That he might teach us. But here's the tough part. In order to be taught, we must be and we must remain teachable the phrase I know is the answer of the unteachable someone says you probably need to seek and spend more time with God I know that's the sound of an unteachable person you need to do this Uh, have you tried doing oh I know I know I know, I don't, I don't need, I know. We come to the Lord's word and it says, you need to come before me, you need to come humble. Oh, I know, I know. We need to remain teachable. It's okay if we do already know to still accept the advice, to still accept the leading and the guidance, to still accept God's word. We may have come across God's word multiple times before, and and instead of saying, I know, say, oh, you're you're telling me that again, Lord. Thank you. I probably forgot. I've probably been walking in the wrong way with that. There's a reason why the Lord repeats things throughout the Bible, and he'll repeat it over and over and over again. It's because while we do know it, we forget. Sometimes those who are lost at what to do and what direction to take, they say they don't know God's will or where God's leading. And to that I would ask, and I would have you ask before God, how have I been following you, God? Have I been doing a good job of it? Where have I ignored you? Where have I disobeyed you? Do we spend time in his word, learning his ways, learning his paths? Are we obeying what we do know? Because God is not obligated, and will never be obligated, to reveal His counsel, share His counsel with us if we're not even going to obey the direction that He's already given us. There's a uh, there's a promise in Psalm twenty-five, thirteen. It follows after Psalm twenty-five, twelve, where it says, who is this person who fears the Lord? Verse 13 says, all who fear the Lord will flourish in this life. The one who fears the Lord will live a good life. You have to change your definition of good life, though. This doesn't mean you're going to have two cars, three kids, a white picket fence and all that. You know, the American, the American dream is not the calling of God for those that are able to achieve that and God has blessed them with that that's icing on the cake. A good life is one that is morally upright, morally excellent, excellent, led and guided by God all the days of your life. That's a good life. They know the direction of God. They live a good life, but a good life is not div- it, 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 it's not exempt from suffering and difficulty but a good life is that which knows the direction and the leading of god through suffering and difficulty i mean in the middle of trials and troubles you have to wait it out anyway right you have to learn to wait upon the lord and trust that he's with you and he'll never leave you every experience that we go through is the experience that gives us new light to the hope that god is with you and god is faithful It means you can trust in God and not disgrace yourself because you have to manipulate the situation to work it out the way you want. You just get to rest in peace that God is in absolute control. Life is confusing and hard and difficult whether you know Christ or not. But when you have Christ, you have the illumination. You have the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. You have the guidance and the leading from God. And maybe you're here tonight, and you don't know why you were here. But something brought you here. Maybe you're in a time of confusion now, and you've been going, what do I do? Where do I go? Maybe not specifically asking the Lord for it. I believe the worship team is going to play one last song for us. And while they do that, I want to invite you. Maybe, maybe you're here. And you've never given your life to Christ. But you're tired of trying to figure out this life on your own. You'd, rather, you'd like to have what everybody would say would be like a cheat book. You want to know what is God's will. Where is God leading When you give your life to Christ, not only does He promise to forgive you of all your sins, restore your relationship with God, but you are indwelt with the Holy Spirit who will lead you and guide you in all righteousness. You will have a personal guide through this life. I'm not saying you'll know every right and perfect decision to make, but you will know the one who has your life and holds it in complete control. You won't have to wander around stumbling blindly. Obscenely confused with what's going on and what choices you need to make. Maybe you are here and you do know Christ as your Lord and Savior, but maybe you've been walking in a different way because you want to have Christ and live your life too. Your way. But it's a confusing thing. How do you live with one foot in the world and one foot with Christ? Without feeling lost? without feeling like you're off that path. Paul says in Colossians chapter 2, verse 6, he says, So then, just as you have received Christ Jesus as Lord and continue, you, you need to continue to walk in him. And here's how you receive Christ Jesus as Lord. In faith. Simply coming to him and saying, I believe you died on the cross for my sins. Forgive me of my sins. Give me new life. Lead me and guide me in that new life. And walk with Him. Know Him and walk with Him. You're going to have to spend time with Him. And, Christian, those of you who know Christ, just as you received Him in faith, you continue to walk with Him in faith. He may lead you down a crazy road. But you're still with him. He's still got you. He's still holding you. Paul also warns, he says, be careful that no one takes you captive through philosophy and empty deceit based on human tradition, based on the elements of the world rather than Christ. You will be taken captive when you choose to follow anything other than Christ. And so I invite you, if that's you and you you need direction in this life, I invite you to give your life to Christ. If that's you and you've fallen off the path, I invite you to come and give your life back to Christ. Say, I'm going to follow you. I want to obey you. I need your help to get back on that path of righteousness. And I'm going to lead you in a prayer. And it's not the prayer, the prayer is not any magic words, it's the condition of your heart before God. Heavenly Father, we come before you tonight. And Lord, for those who need Christ and his forgiveness of their sins. Father, I pray that uh, you would lead them and guide them in their heart to come to Christ and ask for forgiveness. Ask him to become Lord in their life and to be the one that would lead them and guide them in righteousness. That they would stop living for themselves and start living for him. And that they would come humbly, surrendering, saying, I don't know the answers. And those who want to give their life to Christ again, it's as simple as coming back and saying, Lord, I've strayed. But here I am again. Back and I just ask that you forgive me of my immense sin. Take me back. Put me back on that right step. Lead me. God, you promise that those who come to you, that those who call upon the name of Christ, shall be saved. He will never, by any means, cast away any who call upon his name. And we thank you for that promise, Lord, and we turn to you. And we thank you, and it's in Jesus' name. Amen.